And you can be seated. As you do so, you can open up your Bible to John chapter 1 and Mosaic Kids. You can roll out, follow our friends in the yellow shirts, see Miss Antonia in the back waving. The rest of you can open up your Bible to John 1. As you do that, I want to uh, take a moment just to provide a commendation and then an exhortation. I want to provide a commendation to Stephen Clardy. One of the things that I love, yeah, absolutely. He doesn't want this, um, and that's why I'm glad to give it. One of the things that I love about Stephen is Stephen. I don't know if you know this, but uh, a lot of worship music in the life of the church. Get out of here, brother. Get out of here. I won't, I won't embarrass you. A lot of worship music in the life of the church is just thin. It's just thin. Stephen helps provide substantive songs for us to sing together. I don't know if you know what a gift that is. Some of you just heard for the first time a verse that is very often cut out of, Oh, come all ye faithful. It's a pretty dense verse. But it's the Nicene Creed, sung. Oftentimes it's omitted because it's, it's kind of mouthy, it's kind of wordy. But the fact that we were gifted that, when so often it's just kind of held out of view, is a testament to Stephen's depth of leadership. And for that, I am very grateful. Thank you, brother, as you lead us in worship. Now an exhortation. I want us to clean that angel tree out, okay? I, I, I don't even, when 1045 shows up, I don't even want there to be a tag left. I want them in the back to have to go, you know what, we got to come up with something else so that we can meet even greater need, all right? So that's my exhortation towards us is I just want to go ahead and wipe that angel tree out, okay? Can we do that? Let's do it. Let's do it. John chapter 1, my daughter yesterday uh, in the 45 minutes that took us to get to Fort Worth where we were having a birthday party, where we were seeing or going to a birthday party, she must have asked 20 times, how much longer? Uh, How long till we get there. And listen, I don't blame her. Fort Worth is as good as El Paso to me. I've said that a number of times. Uh, when people tell me they're coming to Dallas and they're like, oh, where are you, you going to be at? They're like, Fort Worth. I'm like, well, I won't see you. Uh, it's, it's too far away. Uh, so I understand what she was saying, but I heard that question so many times yesterday. And I resonate with the question, how long till we get there? How much longer will it be? I got to tell you, that's really the question of Advent. That's really the question of Advent. How long Till we get there, how much longer will it be? Today is the first Sunday of the Advent season, and we, in coordination and congruence with the global and historic church, we mark today as the beginning of Advent, the Sundays that precede the Christmas celebration. I was telling the the worship team before that you may not know this, but in some high church traditions, do you know they don't even put up the Christmas tree till Christmas Eve? Can you imagine? If I, if I exhorted you to do that, that would be the most divisive thing I had ever preached. I am sure of it. I've preached some bangers, but that one, you guys would be like, no, no longer. They've abandoned the true gospel. Christmas tree goes up the day after Thanksgiving. We put our Christmas tree up after Thanksgiving, and I love doing it. It's a great fun, but I got to tell you, when we do these things, we enter into a season just a little bit ahead of time. And so when we kind of step into the season of Advent, it's important for us to remember something that we definitely want to forget. We don't want Advent. We want Christmas. We don't want Advent. Nobody wants Advent. You want Christmas. Advent is a season of waiting. It's the season where we ask how much longer, how long till we get there. We don't want more waiting in our world. We want the present now. And yet we live in a world of waiting. And for that reason, we need Advent. 
So let me give you the definition that we've used for the last four years when we think about Advent. If, if this is your first time with us, maybe you write this down. If you've been coming and now this is your home church, this is the definition of Advent we provide. You can write this down. Advent is a season of waiting, a season of expectancy, of desperate longing. It's a season where we remember that we too wait for a Savior. You see, we sing songs, oh, come all ye faithful, come thou long expected Jesus. Why do we sing those songs if Christ has already come? Because he is coming again. See, the advent of Christmas is merely the first advent. That word, advent, literally means arrival. That's what the word advent means. It means arrival. And most of the time when we think about advent, we think about the first arrival of Christ, the Son of God incarnate. But oftentimes we forget there is a second advent that is coming. There is a second arrival, and we are caught in the tension between the already of Christ's first coming and the not yet of his second. So over the next four Sundays, we're going to talk about advent through the lens of God's promises, specifically four Ps. And if you've been around Mosaic for any length of time, you've heard these before, but these are the four promises we're going to be talking about. The first, the promise of God's presence. The promise of God's presence. That's what we're going to talk about today. Next week, we're going to talk about the promise of God's people. We're talking about the promise of God's people. The week after that, we're going to talk about the promise of God's purpose. Promise of God's purpose. And lastly, we'll talk about the present promise of God's place. These four Ps are how we often talk about the whole story of Scripture at Mosaic. God is determined to have his people live their whole life in his presence to reflect his purposes in his place. Presence, people, place, purpose. And let me spoil Christmas for you. Christmas is the partial fulfillment of these promises. And yes, I said partial. Christmas is the partial fulfillment of these promises. Christ has fulfilled these things in his first coming, but the full fulfillment occurs in the second advent, in the second coming of Christ. And advent is a season where we try to step in to something that we often try to avoid for the whole year, waiting, and remembering that we wait. We wait for the God who has come and the God who is coming again. Let me read John 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. I know it's a big passage, but this will be the most important part of our service. It will be me reading the words of God here. So I'll promise i got nothing better to say after this than what John has said. So I'm going to read it all for us. John 1, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 18. And afterwards, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. We do that because we want to give thanks to God. So we respond, thanks be to God. We give thanks because God hasn't left his people in silence. He has spoken to us. Let me read John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What I want us to talk about today is the promise of God's presence. The promise of God's presence. You see, going all the way back to the beginning of the story, God created the world so that his people could live their whole lives in his presence. Why is that a good thing? Because God's presence is where there is fullness of joy. You and I were created to live in the presence of God. Ecclesiastes says, eternity has been set into our hearts. Let me assure you, there is nothing outside of the presence of God that will satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. Nothing. And you were created that way. You were created with a lack that only God can meet. And yet, from the very beginning, humanity chose to try to meet that lack on their own terms, rejecting God's rule and reign to establish their own kingdom and setting into ripple effect the story of redemption the history of God's saving action in the world where he entered in to give to himself a people, to set aside for himself a people through whom he would send a hero who would make right all that sin had made wrong and would once again make it accessible for us to enter into the presence of God. And so in John 1, we begin John 1 with what is a very different introduction from any of the other Gospels. And John is focused on this reality. The word of God has come in the flesh and brought with him grace in the presence of God. You see, the God who is, the Son of God, the word who was God and the word who was with God, who was in the beginning with God, he created the world before he entered the world as a human child, as a baby. You see, before there is a first coming, the Son of God exists eternally with God the Father and God the Spirit, like, that's, like that line in O Come All Ye Faithful. True God from true God, light from light eternal, begotten, not created. You see, the Son of God, before he experiences the incarnation, where he takes on human flesh, the Son of God had eternally existed and now eternally exists in flesh. You see, this is the mystery of the incarnation. Christ is not just showing up for the first time. This isn't a B plan. The Son of God is entering the world, and John is trying to capture the mystery of the incarnation. And what he is saying here is more wonderful than I can preach into your heart. You have to pray this into your imagination. I can't take a hammer and just pound this truth into your head, into your heart. We, we could sing a thousand carols and miss the wonder of it all, which is the magic and the mystery of the incarnation, where the Son of God, second person of the Godhead, takes upon himself human flesh and enters the world as a baby, 
as a baby. John is trying to capture this tension that before the Son of God came into the world, he created the world. When the Son of God enters the world in the incarnation, he enters a world he created. Look in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Son of God, as he enters into the world, he enters into the world that he had created by the fiat and the decree of God the Father. He had been the word spoken in creation. He had been cooperative with God the Father and the Spirit in the creation of the world. And he enters a world where he has already shattered darkness by distinguishing day from night. He enters a world where he has already hung the sun and the moon and the sky. And the incarnation is the unveiling in flesh of all that the Son of God is, was, and will be. The mystery of the incarnation is that the Son of God enters a world that he created so that God can begin to recreate the world in the Son of God. He can begin to remake and renew and refashion. You see, creation was supposed to be a cosmic temple. It was was engineered that way. The garden was supposed to be a temple, a garden temple. And what was that temple for? So that humanity, the jewel of God's creation, could live their whole life in fellowship with the presence of God. You see, all of life was meant to be lived quorum Deo, before the very face of God, in his presence and in his fellowship forever. This is where life was meant to be lived, right next to the God who gave it. And yet something tragic happens. Sin breaks shalom. Sin breaks this fellowship. Sin breaks the peace between God and man and humanity and one another. And the incarnation is not the beginning, but it is certainly the crescendo of God's plan to redeem, renew, and restore this broken world. It's not the beginning, but it's the crescendo of the history of redemption. And I don't know that we often think about Christmas that way. I know that it's easy for me to forget it, certainly, right? When we think about Christmas, when I think about Christmas, we think about all of the things that kind of attend to the holiday. We think about presents and hot chocolate and Christmas lights, and I love all those things. I love hot chocolate. I love Christmas movies. We watched Elf a couple nights ago, and it holds up, you know? I love to give presents. I love to receive them. But something that we often lose in the Christmas season is the blessing of presents. Not with a T. I know my Southeast Texas accent doesn't help me here. Not presents, but presence, being, attention. I mean, you, you know this just in the hustle of the holidays, don't you? Doesn't it just feel like the rush of the holidays can sometimes you feel like, wow, I'm more exhausted after them than before them? Where it's very easy to kind of lose sight of what's happening. I don't just mean that we lose a sense of the presence of God, though we do that. I mean that sometimes we will blitz through the holiday season with such energy and excitement about what we hope it will deliver that we actually don't get what we hope it will deliver and we find ourselves lacking on the other side of it. So we lose presents, and yet one of the great gifts of Christmas, one of the great gifts of Advent is a reminder that the world 
has been waiting for the presence of God, and in the incarnation, it receives it as a gift. I wonder what it would look like for you and I. And I mean this not just like, I don't mean this just kind of in like the really high-level spiritual terms here. I, I wonder what it would look like for us right now, before the hustle and bustle has started. I wonder what it would look like for us to say, no, the busyness for the next five weeks. I wonder what it would look like for us to say, you know, we could go to 20 parties. We could. And if you got it, you know, go for it. I wonder what it would look like for us to say, you know, I could work a little less. I wonder what it would look like for us to say, you know, I probably could binge a little less. I probably could give my attention to the Lord, to my family, to my friends. I could probably linger a little bit longer. Just a, a countercultural strategy to say, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of played the season this way before and just not interested. I, I think you, you have that invitation. You can make that decision right now. You can make a deliberate decision to say, I'm going to slow down a little bit this time. And I'm going to say yes to giving my attention to Christ, to the people around me, to my neighbors, to the needs. Consider it. The incredible reality that the Son of God has brought the presence of God into the world in incarnation. That's an incredible thing. And that we can live near to the presence of God because of what he's done for us. Do you feel far from God? It's okay to be honest with yourself about that. Do you feel indifferent? Do you feel apathetic? No believer has not fallen into that season. Sometimes it lasts far longer than you could ever imagine. The incarnation is this reality. In a world that had grown indifferent, apathetic, and hostile to the presence of God, you know what God says? I don't care. I'm bringing my presence to you. In the face of your rejection, in the face of your hostility, I'm coming. This is exactly what the incarnation does. We see this in verses 9 through 13, the blessing of his presence, the fact that he came even though he was not wanted, which kind of blows our minds a little bit when, as Christians, we think about, about the joy of Christmas and the mystery of the incarnation and the coming of Christ. We think, who would reject that? And yet, verses 9 through 13 says that his people did. Those who were most primed to receive him were most inclined to reject him. He came. And I wonder about that. Verses uh, 6 through 8 are kind of a funny side note. Maybe you felt that when I was reading through. Read, read it back uh, later today. And you can kind of sense like, wait, what's going on here? It kind of cuts away to John the Baptist. I, I think that's on purpose. This is not the John who is writing the gospel. This is a reference to John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8. That this is There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a, uh, as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light that came to bear witness about the light. You know, for years I kind of wondered, I wonder why that's there. It seems an interesting like kind of sidestep. Talking about Jesus and we cut away to John the Baptist. And over the years it's become increasingly clear to me what that reason is for which is that the longer that you're kind of around spiritual matters, the easier it is to make them all about you, right? Christmas is certainly a season where it's easy to have it all terminate on self, and yet here in the 
explanation of the wonder of the incarnation, you have a passage specifically calling your attention to the last of the prophets, John the Baptist, really a hero in the history of redemption. He wasn't the thing. He wasn't the center of the story, and neither are you, neither am I. Just a, it's just a quick note there. I, the more I read it, the more I come to love that part of this passage. But verses 9 through 10 talk about the blessing of his presence and the burden of the rejection. Look at what it says. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then what has got to be one of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. See, the presence of God is a blessing because of what it accomplishes, Verses 9 through 13 tell us that. The purpose of the Son of God coming into the world, the goodness of the presence of God is really twofold. The first is that this presence of God, the incarnate Son of God, is light in the darkness. That's why we light Advent candles. Did you know that? That's why we light the candle. We light the candle as a reminder that even in the darkness, the light of Christ has come and has not been put out. And this light, according to John, is the life of men, the light in the darkness. The incarnation is the beginning of the great pushback against the darkness of this world. The Son of God enters in to a dark and darkening world, and even in the face of its rejection and hostility, he begins to push back the darkness. That's one of the principal blessings of the presence of God. Another blessing of the presence of God is found in verse 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What is the second principal blessing of the presence of God? To be adopted as God's children. He gave the right to become children of God. The light of Christ doesn't just push back the darkness of the world. It enlightens our lives as God's family. It invites us in to the warm hearth and home of God's covenant love. It pulls us in to the depth and the beauty of the good news of the gospel that we can become and are children of God adopted. You see, what Christ possessed by nature, by right, he gives to us by grace. That's part of the wonder of the incarnation. The Son of God enters into the world in the incarnation by right, by very nature. He is in the family of God, the second person of the Godhead. He is a child of God, begotten, not created. And yet, Through the incarnation and the work of redemption, we are given by grace and adoption what Christ possesses by nature and by right. You see, the blessings of the presence of God are many, but two of the principal ones here is light in the darkness and adoption as children. From the very beginning, God intended his people to live in the midst of his presence. He was to be the light of the world, showing us where the good, the true, and the beautiful things were. And we were invited to live as children of God, beloved, unashamed, and free. But having rejected his presence to try and establish our own kingdom, we tried to exchange God's presence for the power of God. 
We didn't want God's rule and reign, but we wanted his power for ourselves. It's the lie of the garden, and it's the lie that we believe every Christmas Every Christmas season, every holiday hustle season, when we enter into it and we say this, I must make the joy and the magic. Right? What commercial right now was not promising you that you can make and will joy and magic into your life? They all are. Why is that such a good pitch? You ever wonder that? Why is it so compelling? In a world that, gosh, really for the remainder of the calendar is going to tell you, well, this is just a natural world and, you know, we don't really have any space for that joy and magic stuff for four or five, six weeks out of every year. It's almost like the whole Western world just says, you know what would be nice? A little bit of magic, a little bit of joy just maybe a little sprinkle of the supernatural. Why does that pitch work so well every year? Because you were created for it. You were created for it. You were built for it. You were hardwired to want it. It's not bad to want it. I'm not shaming you for wanting it. I want it too. It's just the difference between idols and Jesus is that idols make promises they can never deliver on. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we want from the idols we seek. That's part of the magic of Christmas. And it is a true magic, like Lewis talked about, a deeper magic, a story underneath the false stories of our age. Looking at verse 10, the world rejected him in the beginning when the Son of God takes upon himself human flesh. Humanity rejects him again. The garden is repeated in the incarnation, and it's tragic to see it. He came to his own. What does that mean? He came to Israel. He came to a people who for thousands of years had been hearing of the promises. A Savior is coming. A Messiah is coming. The Son of David is coming. A King is coming. A hero is coming. And when he comes to the people who had heard the words, they reject him. And you know where the story goes. And we'll hear about it on Good Friday and Easter. That rejection crescendos months from now in the history of the church calendar. But for our purposes today, we know we get a foretaste that from the very beginning, from before he even breathed his first breath as a baby into this world, the life of the Son of God is accompanied by persecution. From the very first moment, there is hostility and bloodshed surrounding him. And yet, even in the midst of all of this, Christ pushes back the darkness and gives life and adoption to all who received him. Born of God. What does that mean? Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does it mean to be born of God? Well, the theologians have talked about this as the new birth, being born again. The fancy word for it is regeneration. A new heart is given. An old heart is removed. A heart that only had old, unrighteous desires is replaced with a new heart that is soft and has righteous desires. This king who is coming is a king who's not just concerned about a world at war with itself, though he is, and he is the solution to it and the hero of it, but he is concerned about the war that lies in the line through the center of every human heart, which is that we need a new heart. We must be born again. 
the first birth doesn't do. And I wonder if we have grappled with the overwhelming need that both you and I have to be born again, to experience a new birth. Uh, Thomas Chalmers called it the expulsive power of a new affection, a soft heart in exchange for an old one, a righteous heart in exchange for an unrighteous one, a heart inclined towards all that is good, true, and beautiful when we're born with a heart that is callous to all of those things. The blessing of God's presence is profound, but the glory of his presence is overwhelming. Look in verse 14, because this, for the original audience, would have been the most shocking aspect of what John had to say. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skipping down to verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see, the glory of God's presence is that he reveals to us who God is. He shows us clearly by taking on flesh this idea of tabernacling among us. that The Son of God enters the world and immediately becomes... In the life of the world, in the history of redemption, the locus of God's presence embodied in a person, the center of it. In all of this, there is an unspeakable wonder, something that goes far beyond what we can grasp outside of faith, and it is the Son of God entering into the world, taking upon himself human flesh to show us who God is and to accomplish all that God had promised. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, part of the wonder of God's grace is that God delights to be near to his people even when we don't want it. God delights to be near to his people even when we, even when the world doesn't want it. And he comes bringing with him an abundance. What is this abundance? For from his fullness we have received grace that's not where it ends. For we have received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. When I hear that phrase, I've always thought grace upon grace. You ever stood on the beach, just watch the waves come in over and over and over and over. You could stand there for lifetimes and the waves would not stop coming in over and over and over. Does the ocean look exhausted? No, if anything, the coast does. The coming in of the waves doesn't deplete the abundance of the ocean. The giving of grace in Jesus does not deplete the grace of God. Infinite is too tiny a word to talk about the abundance of the grace upon grace in Jesus. And if you don't know that yet, just give it a little bit more sin in your life. A little bit more life to live. A little bit more sorrows of earth this side of the not yet. And you'll realize grace is not an index running down. It hasn't been depleted and it won't be. I love this verse, too, because it runs counter 
to what is certainly the most enrapturing story of the Christmas season, right? You know the story of Santa Claus, okay? Now, I'm not interested in giving you an opinion about who he is or who he might be or might not be, okay? Leave that to the parents in the room. The story of Santa Claus, though, is a picture of a bag that has endless gifts in it, right? Filled to the brim with good things. But let me ask you, who gets those good gifts? He's making a list, right? He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's... Thank you. Thank you, brother. It's just the good little boys and girls who gets the gifts, right? That's who gets the gifts that Santa has. But you see, the story of Santa pales in comparison to the wonder of Christmas, doesn't it? Because when Christ comes, he brings grace upon grace, an inexhaustible well of wondrous grace, and who gets it? Even the naughty ones, right? Even the ones who don't make the list. I got to tell you, that's really good news. Because if you think you would have made the good list, spoiler, you wouldn't. You haven't. And you could spend the rest of your life trying, and you're never going to cut it. But even the broken down ones, even the messed up ones, even the ones who don't deserve anything, they receive the grace upon grace. You know, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. How do we know that God has grace to give to needy sinners? Because the Son of God came and showed us. He revealed who God is. We don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to make up fanciful stories about who he is. We know him because he told us. He showed us in himself. You see, the glory of Christmas is that the Son of God has come into the world bringing light to the dark places, life to the dead places, and grace for the needy. And he has done this in the very presence of God, long awaited the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this, this is the glory that we still wait for, the glory of the second coming of Christ, the glory of the second advent. This is what the first advent is about. This is what this season in life of our church is about, priming our hearts, pumping them up to experience a depth of desire that we often dull or dismiss. So here is my prayer for you and for us this advent. I pray that you and I experience throughout the season a holy discontentment. I want us to experience a holy discontentment. I hope that your season is full of Christmas joys. I really want that for you. Selfishly, I want it for myself. I hope that you have the best hot chocolate, the best movie nights, the best fun decorating, that you receive the gift that you want. I hope the best for you. And I hope that after every taste of joy, you feel a sense of lack. And I hope you turn to the joy and say thank you. And I hope you turn to the Lord in your lack and say, how much longer? How long till we get there? A holy discontentment. The day after Thanksgiving, that's when we decorate for Christmas at our house. And we have fun doing it. All week long, my daughter was so excited. The whole week. But yesterday, the day after, after a day of explosive festivity is the only way I could describe it. Lots of fun. She said this on the way home. She said, I had so much fun, but it wasn't as much fun as I thought it would be. 
I got to tell you, that's a sweet spot. That's the place between the already and the not yet. I hope that Christmas season for you, I hope that you can say daily, I had so much fun, but it wasn't as much fun as I thought it would be. And I hope you're left lingering with a longing that cuts deep. And I hope you find the joy of the glory of God's grace in Jesus. And I hope it gives you rest. Because it will. The blessing of God's presence and the blessings therein are better than anything else you'll find outside of him. It has always been true. It is. And it will always be. Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Maranatha, Lord, would you come? Pray with me. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus, of which we are needy for beyond our own reckoning. I pray that this people would be blessed with a holy discontentment this season. I pray for deep wells of gratitude, for a multiplying of the common grace gifts of joy. I pray that they would slow down their hurried hearts and their hurried lives. And I pray that in the stillness, they would be met with the very presence of God, even as they receive the presence and attention of others and give it. And I pray that in all of this, their hearts would long for something that the season cannot deliver, but that you will. I pray the same for me. How callous my heart often is, Father, to what is truly good and beautiful. Soften my heart, God. Give me a longing that only you can meet. As Augustine has prayed, Father, make us restless until we find our rest in you. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen.